Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Camilla Hurdy, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Akron School of Law. We will discuss her article, The General Knowledge, Skill, and Experience Paradox, which will be published in the Boston College Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Camilla. Thanks. Thanks, Brian, and thanks so much for having me. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Um, so I really enjoyed reading this paper in part because, you know, as an IP law professor, I'm really interested in trade secret law, but I don't know all that much about it. And it's been really cool to follow your work and the work of other scholars like like Sharon Sandine working in, in this area, uh, which is increasingly important. Um, so I was wondering if we could start, you know, because your, your paper dig, takes a really deep dive into one particular I think you point out correctly underutilized and misunderstood trade secret trade secret doctrine. But for people like me and maybe some listeners who aren't intimately familiar with with trade secret law, maybe we can kind of take a big picture approach first. So, so can you explain to listeners, you know, what is a trade secret anyway? Yeah, great. So, a trade secret. So, at present, trade secrets are protected under statute at both the state and the federal level. And to have a trade secret, um, one has to show that they have information that is not generally known to others, that they've taken reasonable steps to keep secret, and that drives um, economic value from being secret. So um, just for example, the case that I start with is, of course, the now famous uh, 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 Waymo versus Uber dispute. And of course, in that case, Waymo is claiming that it has trade secrets relating to its self-driving car technology. It's stuff that Waymo has kept really secret within the company, only disclosing it to its employees. And so Waymo believes that once an employee leaves and tries to use those secrets at a different company, Waymo can sue for misappropriation of trade secrets and protect that information. Um, and of course, trade secrets don't have to be patented. This is um, information that's both patentable and unpatentable. Right. Right. So so maybe you could dig into that story just a little bit more, because I thought it was actually really quite illustrative of the kind of policy questions or even doctrinal questions as well that are at stake in, in a trade secret situation. So like what happened there? Like what was Waymo claiming the employee, um, is Lewandowski his name, uh, did wrong and sort of what was his response? Awesome. So yeah, so so in 2007, um, Google's self-driving car project, um, and now of course the company is called Waymo, um, is is getting started, and they're they're spending a lot of money developing um, um, this uh, light detection and ranging um, technology called lidar, um, which is what helps the cars see on the road. And basically, Lewandowski was this kind of hotshot engineer who's hired by Waymo, and he's there for a while. Um, and then he starts to get dissatisfied and want to pursue things um, elsewhere. So he starts um, interviewing with Uber, and eventually Uber actually purchases Lewandowski had had simultaneously, um, presumably with Google's per- permission, um, had this startup. Um, Uber uh, spends $700 million on Lewandowski's new self-driving car startup and offers him a position of employment. So, you know, so far so good, um, especially because this is California, right? There's non-compete agreements are not enforceable. So presumably Lewandowski can go and work at this other company and keep pursuing what he's doing. 
not so fast. Turns out um, in the midst of his departure, he has actually downloaded uh, 14,000 documents from um, Waymo's um, um, servers. And um, this comes to light through an inadvertent email. Um, This is somehow this is a way that trade secret disputes come to light is people mistakenly send emails or actually in this case, it was a third party um, sends an email that has this mentioned. And so Google finds out um, Sue's not Lewandowski. Lewandowski actually um, has an arbitration um, agreement. So he's um, not in this lawsuit. Sue's Uber, right? The competitor um, for misappropriation of trade secrets argument being that Uber has, um, 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 acquired trade secrets through Lewandowski, who had a duty of confidentiality to his former employer. That's like a classic insider um, case. And they actually, Waymo gets the preliminary injunction. Um, and I have this great, so Judge Alsop is like, whoa, you don't get many cases where there's pretty direct proof. Somebody downloaded 14,000 documents and then left the next day. Um, and also there was this $700 million payment. Did I say 700,000 before? $700 million. You say a million. Yeah. yeah a million. Uh, you know, so it's like, what are you really paying for here? Is it this guy and his little startup or is it Waymo Google's trade secrets. Um, but case starts to break down. And um, ultimately, the parties settle four days into trial. Um, we can speculate on why that was the case. Um, but with big relevance to my project here, um, there's a bunch of arguments, defensive arguments that um, Uber is able to bring. The big, actually, huge kicker is not actually clear that Uber ever got those documents, that Uber ever mm. got the secrets. And so it's kind of hard to misappropriate trade secrets if you didn't get them. Um, mm. But for my purposes, one of the defensive arguments that Uber makes um, is that Anthony Lewandowski wasn't taking his former employer's trade secrets. He was just using his general knowledge, skill, and experience to do what mm. he does best and to work for a new company. Um, and so that's where um, we see this as you say, uh, under, I believe, underutilized and, and also extremely misunderstood doctrine comes up in this one of the biggest trade secret cases of the day. Um, it, this this information, even though it was uh, tangible, right, even though it was um, written down in these 14,000 documents, this is, this is part of Lewandowski's generalized knowledge and skill, which he had learned on the job, and that Waymo cannot protect as a trade secret. Um, so this is like a total reframing of what's going on here, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When it seems like, based on your telling and, and what I've heard elsewhere, that trade secret issues are becoming increasingly important in this context where employees want to leave employment with one employer and move to another employer. And it seems like we have to, or the law has to kind of balance the interests of the employer against the interests of the employee in that circumstance. That's exactly right. And I think that this, um, as I say, sort of abstract is this doctrine really gets to the heart of that issue. It's like on one hand, employers are told you can protect your trade secrets if you take efforts to keep this stuff secret. If it if it has economic value to secret, you can even disclose it with, to your employees so long as you do it carefully, right? I mean, that's the whole principle of a firm is that you can share this stuff in confidence with your employees. But then on the flip side, There's also, I think, increasingly um, this notion that people, really skilled, talented people, should not be locked down to one place and that they should be able to go and do what they think they do best where they want. And so there are these two competing interests. And I think 
they're it, the, the the conflict is occurring both on the level of sort of like morality, right? It's like what's the right thing to do, um, but it's also in terms of efficiency, right? Is like is it better to allow these companies to recoup their investments by protecting their trade secrets very robustly, or is it better to let some of their employees leak out and go and do great things elsewhere? Mm-hmm. So, based on your paper, my understanding is that trade secret law is currently primarily statutory and increasingly federalized, although still, you know, existing and enforced at the the state law level as well. But it's been around for a long time, even though it hasn't always gotten the attention it it deserves from from legal scholars, I don't think. Um, And it's changed a lot over the years. So I was wondering if you could kind of just sketch out a history of the development of trade secret law for listeners as a way of explaining the source of this general knowledge, skill, and experience exclusion that you talk about in in your paper. Yeah, so that's a really, um, the the trajectory is very interesting. It is now um, largely statutory, except in New York, where it's still common law, is now as of 2016 federal. Um, But yeah, it has these roots, right? So, um, we get trade secrets initially being protected in America in the 19th century. And Sharon Sandy has an excellent article on sort of the evolution of the history here. Um, but basically, it's, it arises from courts' power in equity to grant injunctions. And the cases where this is frequently arising at the start are these insider cases um, where employees are being exposed to a lot of um, invaluable information belonging to their employers. And so it's no coincidence that trade secrets evolve at the same time as the Industrial Revolution. Um, Catherine um, Fisk's work on this kind of shows that, look, it, it was at the same point at which we have this sort of new factory setting where um, information is no longer, technology is no longer just being um, derived in the sort of artisanal context where you have a master and apprentice. No, we're talking about big factories, um, lots of people hanging around, um, being exposed to information who are not family and friends. And so we have more and more of these cases where um, an employee then wants to leave. Maybe it's a foreman, maybe it's somebody just on the factory floor wants to leave and either start their own company um, or um, work for somebody else. And um, one of the, just an early case that I mentioned, um, which is um, also cited in the Supreme Court in Kiwani. So it's, it's been, um, it hasn't been totally forgotten in the historical record. It's actually a Hawaii, an Ohio case. And of course, it's Columbia University of Akron. I'm always excited to see Ohio cases. It's National Tube Co. versus Eastern Tube Co. And what we had here was um, this guy named um, Harry Nuttall. Um, he's working in a tube works. And while he's employed there, he takes with him patterns of the plaintiff's machines, of his employer's machines, and he makes castings of them to, to have new machines. Um, and he, he supplies those new machines to another company. And the now at this point, this is, and we're talking um, um, 1902. So um, this is a time when it's become more and more common for these employers to move for injunctions. So we get a motion for an injunction. Um, and in this case, the court actually denies it and says, um, yes, we accept now that it's part of the common law that a trade secret is a secret known only to the owner um, or proprietor of it and that um, and, and that he can um, disclose that to his employees to whom it is necessary to communicate the secret. Um, so potentially there'd be an injunction available under this new evolving law, um, but can't do it in this case because here 
um, this is um, this is this is part of Nuttall's what has become um, his knowledge and skills. And so the court has this great quote that trade secret protection does not mean that when I employ employ a man who has skill, knowledge, and experience in a particular line, ask him to furnish me with the knowledge and employ him because of his knowledge and experience. Um, that that the idea or the things that he evolves become the property of the employer as a trade secret. That is not the idea at all. So right at the heart of this beginning stages, we have this conflict. Of course, on, on the left hand, they're enjoining employees for leaving with their employer's information. On, on the right hand, they're saying, shoot, this is a problem because these people um, are developing all these skills. They're going to want to go. They're not necessarily going to want to stay at one place. They're going to move. Mm-hmm. Um so that's the sort of early foundation for inequity. There's some debate over whether trade secrets are a property interest or whether it's more of a tort, um, right? Because you have a breach of a duty. And I should mention that because that is a big thing that you'll hear about in sort of the origins of the law here is, is this a form of property right? Or is this um, just correcting the breach of a duty that somebody has to another person? And that mm. remains kind of a lingering question, um, I, the, the trajectory is said to be that we're moving towards the property dimension and that we've been doing that consistently over time. Um, I think a lot of people might um, take issue with that. I personally see a lot of commonality between these cases and tort cases. Mm. Um, be that as it may, now we're moving forward, you know, over um, over a century, we've got um, – we do have the the con- just increasingly statutory nature of trade secret law, starting with the Uniform Trade Secrets Act of 1979, um, which has been adopted in all states now except for New York. And um, then, of course, in 2016, the uh, the big the big Defend Trade Secrets Act, and so now we have. Um, a federal statute and it's a lot easier for scholars right and this is i think one reason people are like yeah i'm going to do trade secrets now is because it's easier to cite it you don't have to Mm. cite five state cases to make a point you just cite title 18 of the u.s (laughs) right (laughs) yeah 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 well so one of the interesting things about the particular doctrinal issue that you're looking at is that, you know, as you describe kind of, it seems like trade secret law is increasingly codified, but this, this exclusion hasn't been codified along with the rest of the law and yet nevertheless persists, albeit sometimes in a somewhat mutilated form, it seems like. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that process, sort of how the exclusion has survived as a kind of residual common law doctrine and sort of how courts seem to be misunderstanding it and and why you think it's a misunderstanding. Yeah. Thank you. No, I think that's just like, as always, your question is just like getting to the heart of the matter. Exactly. So, right. We've got this move towards codification But at the same time, I'm telling you that there's this old common law idea that the general knowledge, skill, and experience of employees cannot be protected as a trade secret. What happens to that, right? Is that now part of the, is that now just written into the UTSA? Is it written into the the, the U.S. code now? Um, Unfortunately, there has not been a codification of it, at least not explicitly. Um, And so what the first sort of third of the article kind of exhaustively tracks is what happens to this exclusion. And, And what I ultimately show, and courts are applying it in this way, is that it does remain, um, it's a common law doctrine that supplements the statutory trade secret law. So um, I should, it's worth reading the the, the language. Um, I'll just read the language of the DTSA, which is 
um, deliberately tracking the language of the UTSA in all material respects. Um, and this states that um, a trade secret, um, a, a trade secret is information um, that derives independent economic value, actual or potential, from not being generally known to and not being readily ascertainable by proper means by another person who can obtain economic value from its disclosure or use, and is the subject of efforts that are reasonable under the circumstances to maintain its secrecy. Um, so, um, so, so that's what we have in the statutory language, right? Um, we have this, um, the secrecy requirement of trade secret law is this generally known language. It's that um, information to be a trade secret cannot be um, generally known to others. And the thing is, is that not generally known um, language, um, that's not, that doesn't encapsulate the general knowledge, skill, and experience exclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to understand um, information um, that is not generally known to others, that's referring, and I, and I go through this pretty exhaustively, that's got to be referring to not known to others outside of the company. This is the mm-hmm. secrecy requirement. And that means what that means is that to be a trade secret, information can't be published in a journal article. It can't be disclosed in patents. Um, it can't be public, but it also can't be generally known to the major people who can gain value from it. And so what that says, and this is actually in the drafting history of the UTSA, which again has has then been, that's been used for the DTSA. So this is both state and federal law. Um, the idea here, and this is just quoting the drafters, the language not being generally known to and not being readily ascertainable by proper means by other persons does not require that information be generally known to the public for trade secret rights to be lost. If the principal persons who can obtain economic value from information are aware of it, there is no trade secret. A method of casting metal, for example, may be unknown to the general public but readily known within the foundry industry. So what this is setting up is um, it is the secrecy requirement, but it's a, it's the it's trade secret law's unique notion of what it means to be secret. And it's including when information becomes generally known to the key players in the industry. And so what that means is you can have things that are not in doc- publicly disclosed in documents um, that are not in patents um, that, are, that are actually pretty secret but they're known to so many of the major players in the industry that it's not protectable as a trade secret. So here's where the confusion comes because I think a lot of people, including many of my students, which was the origin of this paper, I explain the the trade secrecy's secrecy requirement. And I also explain this common law doctrine that also, by the way, um, there is another exclusion um, information that is not that is is part of the general knowledge, skill, and experience of an employee cannot be protected as a trade secret. And they'd say, "Oh, it's the same thing as that, right? It's it's not generally known um, to other persons." And I'm like, "No, no, it can't be that because those other persons we're talking about people outside the company. It's it's different." And they'd be like, "Yeah, that you could. I mean, presumably, like if it's generally known to like you know if you interview like." you know, the, the top physicists in the field and you ask them, did you know this? And they say, yeah, then that means it's generally known. Isn't that the same as saying it's part of the general knowledge, skill and experience of the employee? 
And the answer has to be no. If you look at the, the way that this exclusion comes up in the cases, and especially um, the way that the really important, the biggest sources on it, the ones that have really gone into it most extensively, like Turner's 1962 thesis, uh, treatise, like the 1995 um, Restatement Third of Unfair Competition, you see this is actually separate. Um, and I'm going to read to you the language um, of the 1995 um, restatement third and uncompetition, because this is really, really useful. Um, and this was written by very, very smart people who knew a lot about trade secret law and who knew all the major treatises. They knew Milgram on trade secrets, um, common on unfair competition. And they wrote this restatement third in 1995. Um, the timing wasn't great because at this point we already had the statutory UTSA um, had been adopted by almost all the states by that point. So it's like, wow, mm-hmm. just did this get? But it's exceptionally useful. And I'm going to just read you how it describes the exclusion. Um, so the exclusion states, um, the, the, the restatement third under competition, um, um, section um, 42 um, says that, um, um, uh, um, information, The general knowledge, uh, trade secret law does not protect the general knowledge, uh, the general skills, knowledge, training, and experience that an employee acquired during the course of employment. Um, The exclusion potentially applies even to information that the employee um, acquired directly from the former employer. And the third restatement makes several key points. Um, First of all, it it sets up this, it, it, it makes it clear that there is a dichotomy here. There's trade secrets that are protectable on the one hand, like any information that meets those statutory requirements of a trade secret. But then there's this exclusion on the other hand for general knowledge, skill, and experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also clarifying, super important, um, that information is going to be considered general skill, knowledge, training, experience of an employee, even if um it's directly attributable to an investment of resources by the employer. So that's saying, even if the employer funded this, even if the employer funded this training or imparted this information, that can be excluded too. Mm. Um, and then lastly, really important, the third restatement introduces this idea, um, which there's, it's also seen in other case law, like this very important case, SI Handling versus Heisley, the information that might otherwise be a trade secret can lose its status once it becomes so closely integrated with an employee's overall employment experience, that protection would deprive the employee employee of the ability to obtain employment commensurate with the employee's general qualifications. So mm-hmm. the point of all that is that they are separate. They are different requirements. Um, it's not exhaustively included in the statutory definition, but it's still here. Um, and I have lots of footnotes to just show courts continually. It's not, um, it has not been lost. Despite mm. being explicitly codified, we get it all the time. Um, I can go through some of the interesting cases on this, if you like. Yeah, let's. I mean, but j- just to make sure I'm totally clear on how this works, <clears throat> on my understanding, then, what you're saying is that the doctrine provides that even if particular information might otherwise be protected by trade secret law, in some circumstances, it might not be enforceable as a trade secret because 
this doctrine removes it somehow from protection. Is that right? Or is there something more complicated going on that I'm missing? That's right. So this is a big, um, this was a big question I had to deal with is, is this a subject matter bar in the way that we think of under patent law? Like, it's just not a trade secret, right? And that's not exactly what it is. Looking into it further, it seems more, it's, it's like what you just said. It's an equitable doctrine that even information that would otherwise qualify as a trade secret is not going to be protected um, against this particular employee um, because doing so would deprive them of the ability to gain, to get employment commensurate with their overall qualification. So it's, mm. it's, it's a hybrid. It's, it's like a subject matter doctrine um, in the following way. Um, first of all, like I just said, it's kind of this, we've set up this dichotomy. There's trade secrets on the one hand, then there's this excluded general knowledge, skill and experience on the other. Um, it's also like a subject matter bar in the sense that the plaintiff in a trade secret case has the burden to prove they have a trade secret. It's not like a patent where you get a presumption of validity. You have to prove that you have information that qualifies as a trade secret. And at least Milgramon trade secrets, um, has said, and I think this is the right approach, that the burden here is on the plaintiff to show that this is not general knowledge, skill, and experience. So it's similar to the secrecy requirement in that respect, that they have to prove it. Uh. But it's relative, right? It's a relative exclusion. It's only going to apply. So for example, um, if I'm Waymo and my computers have just been hacked um, by outsiders and they've obtained my trade secrets, I can sue them for trade secret misappropriation. On the other hand, say that Anthony Lewandowski has acquired that same information in the course of his job. Well, now he wants to leave. Well, that might be something that's, that he's going to plausibly be able to argue. That's his general knowledge, skill, and experience. Mm, mm. Well, so, so that I think that's that illustration is really helpful. And you give a bunch of really interesting illustrations in, in the paper. I wonder if for listeners, you could kind of pick out an example of where the doctrine would appropriately apply and say that there's no trade secret of infringement, and then also an example where it, it wouldn't and the exclusion wouldn't apply. Great. So let's start with um, so the highlights so that the core the core features of this this doctrine, as I've just said, are sort of you know it's only going to apply um, with respect to sort of an employee or someone in a like situation who's obtained. Um, the information that's become part of their general knowledge, skill, and experience. Um, it can apply even to information that the employer funded and that's otherwise absolutely secret. Um, and um, it's going to have this sort of this merger principle to it, that information that the employee t- obtains on the job can become merged with her skill, knowledge, um, and experience so that she can then leave with it. Um, a great case and one of the sort of benchmark cases on this that nicely illustrates how powerful this exclusion can be is van products versus general welding. Um, so this, this, this may be, may be, I haven't done the exact empirics on this, but this may be the most cited case on the exclusion of all time. This is a Pennsylvania mm. Supreme Court case where basically the court held that van products um, could not protect as a trade secret the design of its newly invented air dryer. Okay, so this is going to be pretty alarming, I think, to companies that have patentable inventions. So basically, um, a van products inventor, so an inventor, a plaintiff, Mr. Norton, conceives of this idea and concept for uh, for a desiccant air dryer that can be used to sort of dry tools and prevent rusting, etc. 
Um, Van actually files for a patent on the dryer. Um, they never get the patent, but that's not really related to the, the issue. It's, it's, it's not necessarily because it was invalid. Um, meanwhile, an employee at Van Products named Vincent Rapp, he began his career in the mailroom. He began his career in the mailroom. He works his way up um, during the period, during the process, and eventually he becomes general manager of the entire air dryer operation. During that period, he becomes intimately involved with Van's air dryer business. He learns significant amounts of secret information, both on the business side and on the technical side. He then leaves to work for a competitor, General General Welding, and when there, um, he, he buys off the open market um, a Van air dryer and then reverse engineers it using the expertise that he learned while he was at his former employer, he then goes and he, he gets um, another, he, he, he starts selling a competing air dryer that's practically identical in function and concept. It, it, it's maybe not infringing. It wouldn't be necessarily infringing on the patent that, that man never got, but it's, it's pretty similar. He's definitely used his, um, you know, all of their secret information to reverse engineer this. Um, so can Van sue from his corporation of trade secrets, right? And one might think, well, sure, right? This is a former employee, clearly learned all this secret information while working there. Um, surely they can protect it as their trade secrets. Um, but the answer was no. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court holds n- not so that much of the information that Van was claiming as a trade secret, including Rapp's general Rapp's knowledge of a general the general market demand for an air dryer, the sources of materials used to make the air dryer, the cost of materials and labor, the identity of the suppliers, the methods of advertising, and some of this technical information had all become part of his general knowledge, skills, and experience, and were not proper subjects for a mental purge. So the court, this is an example of the court really um, expansively applying um, this doctrine. Um, so that's an example of where this court gets it, right? This court understands that this is a separate um, exclusion. Um, but I want to give you just a couple quick examples of cases where courts either get it wrong or just kind of confused. Um, so here's one where I think the court gets it wrong. So um, this I said before that one of the big problems here, I think, is the courts conflate this requirement with the requirement that information not be generally known. Um, and here is just an excellent example of that. So um, this case, um, uh, uh, static control versus dark print. Um, it's a U.S. district court um, in the Fourth Circuit. Um, and this um, this court is applying the North Carolina Trade Secrets Protection Act, which is loosely based on the UTSA um, at the time. And um, here what happens is um, the defendant, um, dark print imaging, um, had been found liable by a jury for, um, for misappropriation of trade secrets based on hiring away um, a former employee of static control, um, a toner scientist named Warren Holsey. Um, the jury found that Holsey had brought with her valuable trade secrets relating to the chemical and physical properties of toners used in ink cartridges, um, and which plaintiff had developed through extensive testing in order to determine the toner's suitability for different um, types of cartridges. Um, so maybe the jury was right here, but here's where the error occurs. So defendant moves for a new trial um, based on the argument that the jury instruction should have distinguished between plaintiff's protectable trade secrets and Holsey's unprotectable generalized skills and knowledge. They're saying, look, 
You forgot to instruct the jury on this really important point of law that Holsey's generalized skills and knowledge cannot be trade secrets. And the court says, uh, no, no, this was, no, you're wrong, no new trial, because the jury instruction adequately stated the law. Why? Because the jury instruction included a full statement that in order to be a trade secret, the information must derive independent actual or economic or potential commercial value from not being generally known or readily ascertainable through independent development or reverse engineering by persons who can obtain economic value from disclosure or use. Um, This instruction is sufficient to exclude generalized skills and knowledge. Mm -hmm. So this is like the ideal example of literally complaining the two things and saying, no, no, we've, we fully stated the law because we can included the requirement that information can't be generally known to others who can obtain value from it. Mm, Right. mm. Um, And then there's just, there's plenty of other examples. It's the federal circuit. um, The, the, another example I give is this Utah medical versus clinical innovations um, case that had also involved some patent issues. So ultimately gets appealed up to the federal circuit Um, here, Utah medical, um, it's making intrauterine catheter devices. Um, it's suing a bunch of former employees under the Utah Uniform Trade Secrets Act. The former employees, um, including um, a former um, vice president of research and development and the former the company's former chief executive officer, um, this guy, Dr. William Wallace, um, they left the plaintiff, the, their former employer, and they took documents containing Utah medical, allegedly containing Utah medical trade secrets. Um, they took a lot of documents, like 17,000 documents, and they left with that. Um, and then they started, they, they, they used all that technical information and, and, and created a competing um, intrauterine catheter. Now, that may, you know, plaintiffs probably had a winning case there just on my read of the case. They probably reached the right outcome. Um, Oh no, excuse me. Sorry. So, 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 so they, they take all these documents and what happens is that the district court um, actually holds for defendants. Now I actually don't know whether this case was rightly decided or not. The plaintiffs seem like they had a pretty strong case here. Given the number of documents that are taken, but regardless, the court reviews all this information and says, you know what? Um, this stuff just doesn't um, constitute trade secrets. And the way that the court gets there is to say, you know, it's possible that this, a lot of this information um, was secret to the plaintiff company. Like they had clearly developed it, spent a lot of money developing it. Um, But the standard, the court writes, cannot be viewed as whether the information is generally known and readily ascertainable to the general public. But based on the defendant's knowledge and experience, whether the information was known or ascertainable to them. So here's a court who, unlike the, the court in the sort of the prior case I told you about the jury instruction, it's not totally confused. It understands that there's a separate exclusion here. It's, it's saying in its head, no, like there's some cases where the defendants have gained all this knowledge experience and they can leave with it, even if it's otherwise secret. But in order to get to that outcome, what the court ends up doing is basically just butchering the language of the Uniform Trade Secrets Act and saying, the standard is not whether the information is generally known and readily ascertainable to the general public. But based on the defendant's knowledge and experience, whether the information was known or ascertainable to them. So you see, it's sort of like a mm. it takes this statutory language and turns it into this version of the general knowledge don't experience exclusion. The federal circuit mm. basically ignores all that and just says, uh, this stuff was um was um not was um was generally known. And they just mm. they don't engage right. with this. 
Right. So, yeah. So your discussion of, of the doctrine is, was just fascinating to me because, you know, I had not thought about it at all before, despite, you know, teaching a brief trade secret section in my intellectual property survey class. And, and I got to say, I mean, in a lot of ways, the exclusion you describe reminds me a lot of the fair use doctrine in copyright in the sense that it seems like a sort of an equitable doctrine designed to mitigate potentially inefficient applications of a kind of property-like tort claim. And, and it struck me in our conversation today that there's an interesting difference in terms of the burden of proof, though. Because, I mean, you mentioned in passing that the burden of proof on the exclusion in a trade secret context is actually on the plaintiff rather than on the defendant. And at least traditionally, we think about fair use the other way around. So I wonder if you have thoughts on, on that. I mean, what do you think of that comparison? And how do you think you know, you know, how important do you think the relative kind of burden of proof uh, issue might be? So I think that's, that's right. I think that the way that this is applied in a lot of cases, it seems to be performing a similar um, outlet as fair use. And just um, as a matter of policy, it does seem to be doing some, some, some similarity. So the main reasons we protect trade secrets are sort of to prevent, you know, immoral acts and to provide this sort of incentive to innovate, right, both with respect to patentable and unpatentable information. And it's also so that employers feel like they can freely disclose information to the employees without introducing inefficiencies in the work product process. But then, wait, we need an outlet. Just like in copyright, you need the fair use outlet. In trade secret law, it's, oh my goodness, we've just given all these employees hot potatoes, right? We've given them um, trade secrets and some of those people are going to be really creative and have all kinds of great things they could do with this information. But we've, we've, um, we've pair, as one court put it, we've paradoxically um, hindered them now, right. By saying you have all this trade secrets and you're becoming stronger and better and, and, and smarter, um, but you can't go and use it. So the, the GS, the general knowledge skill experience outlet is, is, is exactly that it's an outlet. Um, mm. And I think it's very important. And this is why I think it really needs to be reinvigorated. Now, how important do I think the burden of proof is? I'm not sure how important it is because trade secret is a creature of equity. And so if at the end of the day, the court says, I mean, I'm not sure how much it matters. There's two ways it could go. One is the court says, we've looked at this case. We've decided that that the plaintiff has failed to prove they have trade secrets. Um, this is the general knowledge, skill, and experience of the employees. Another way it could go is the court, and this is very frequent. A lot of these cases that I discuss do this option, which is to say, Plaintiff has trade secrets, um, but when it comes to crafting the injunction, we're going to craft it very, very carefully so as to avoid stepping on the employee's ability to go and do work. Mm. Um, So I think that's a huge part of what's going on. I don't like, I don't love thinking of this as the, I don't love the copyright (laughs) analogy. um, There's a fantastic article right now, Similar Secrets by um, Deepa and uh, Varadarajan and Joe Fishman that sort of argues that there's a lot of commonalities um, with copyright Mm -hmm. and Deepa has written a fair use um, trade secret 
fair use comparison here. Um, mm -hmm. I argue that this general knowledge field experience exclusion is a far more effective way to improve the law because it's very particular to the policies of trade secret law, which is to ultimately to protect the integrity of the information. Mm -hmm. um, so saying like, oh yeah, you can go and make a fair use of it is really problematic because then the trade secret's out there. So I argue that this is much more specifically tailored to trade secret law. And we should focus on improving this doctrine. Um, how should we improve it? So if you want like a version of the trade secret fair, fair use that I, that this doctrine provides, um, it's that rule I said earlier from third restatement and from some of the cases, the question, and this is, I guess the important take home here, the ultimate question a court should ask when a defendant says, Hey, um, so, so either where the court says the plaintiff has not appropriately proven that this is not general knowledge and experience, or the defendant says, hey, those trade secrets that plaintiff is claiming, those are my general knowledge and experience. How does the court figure this out? Um, here is the doctrine. So of course, in fair use, we've got these four factors. Well, how? what's our sort of analogy here? So the heart of the analysis should be whether without the use of the information, um, an employee would be able to find work commensurate with her general qualifications at the time of her departure. So that's the ultimate line of inquiry. Um, this comes, this language comes from third restatement, comes from other really important cases. If you look on page 54, footnote 308, you can see a bunch of case sites with using this analysis. But the, so the question, um, this is the, this is the question we need to be asking is with out the use of this information, is the employee going to be able to find work commensurate with their overall qualifications? A few more words are obviously necessary on that because, you know, does that mean any time, like, what does that mean, right? Because then the employee can, can be like, yeah, but I want this job, you know, working for your direct competitor and I want to be doing this using your secrets. Um so, it's, so I get more granular than that. And I say the question, I developed this, what I call the general versus specific dichotomy. And so what we should be doing is asking two questions. So number one, what's the scope of the information the employer is seeking to protect? So sort of how particularly is the employer claiming? More specific claiming is much less problematic. It's a narrow scope. Um, and then the second dimension is how specialized is the employee in that particular area? Um, so just to end, like the last case I think to end with would be the Winston Mincom cases, which is one that is exactly cited by Uber in the Waymo versus Uber dispute. And here mm. is a, an example of the court doing pretty much exactly this analysis. Um, the, these guys, um, Johnson and Tobias, former employees at, um, at Mincom, um, they've been um, they've been working with Mincom to develop an improved tape recorder, um, and they the, the the approach the general approach that Mincom is using to like reduce time skipping et cetera and make the tape recorder work better. Um, they are they're eliminating the flywheel and reducing the size of, of certain parts. So it's like this that's the general approach, but obviously they have a specific prototype. They've got more specifics. Um, Johnson and Tobias want to leave and go and, and make improved tape recorders at a different company using that same general approach. Hmm, how do we deal with this situation? Um, well, the, 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 the way to think about it is would these guys be rendered substantially unemployable? Um, not necessarily in all jobs, but in the jobs for which their specialized training and experience have equipped them. Um, and here, right. Um, if we let, the employer claims super broadly just this basic general approach of making an improved recorder. And that's exactly what Johnson and Tobias have spent their whole, like a major part of their careers getting good at. 
then if we say to them, hey, you can't leave and go do exactly that, well, you've basically just cut off all employment opportunities that, that would be appropriate for them. So that's, um, that's, I think, the way to be thinking about this. I make the analogy to the legal profession, where, of course, non-competition agreements are thankfully unenforceable. But, you know, if you think about it, like, it's one thing to tell a lawyer who's worked at a law firm for 20 years in capital markets um, that they can know they can't go and work in another company, um, you know, um, in uh, in bankruptcy or something. Right? But it's, it's, it's quite another to tell somebody who's been training in this one particular area for so long, you, you can't go do that exact thing that you love. Mm-hmm. So that's to me the sort of the heart of the question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I wonder, Camilla, in closing, the the question I came away from, or one of the questions, because it really got me thinking. Your paper did, but one of the questions I came away from it was uh, came away from it with was, uh, you know, do you think the exclusion that you investigate in the paper tells us something about the subject matter or ontology of trade trade secret law, or is it like a function of the sort of equitable concerns that trade secret law ultimately is attempting to cash out or, or, or maybe, I mean, I guess maybe those two are just the same thing or that's a kind of a false distinction that I'm making. I, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. So do you mean sort of like the categories of information that we might, might want to protect as a general matter? Yeah. That- yeah. Or like, or like, you know, when we think something qualifies mm-hmm. as a trade secret in the first place. Words, what, what do we mean by trade secrets? So, you know, Brian, I really think that it does say something about that. Um, and I, I have, I'm like a big fan of visual thinking. So I do have a diagram on page 12 of my paper that kind of lays out what this doctrine has taught me about the categories of protectable information. Um, and I think this might be where you're getting at, but sort of, um, this is the way I think about it. So, trade secrets, like information that is clearly um, clearly not generally known to others, that has drives independent economic value from being secret, that the employer takes re- reasonable steps to protect, no matter what, as long as information meets those requirements as an initial matter, you can protect that using trade secret law, okay? That's number one category, and that's like the strongest level of protection. You get your trade secret injunction, um, and the, the justifications are that are both to prevent sort of breaches of duty, but also to provide this robust incentive to, to innovate and to develop valuable information. That's level one. Level two is sort of like, and this is, of course, lingering in the background, right, is information that doesn't quite qualify as a trade secret. Um, it's just confidential. Maybe it's like documents that you've received in the course of your employment, um, here, you know, if it doesn't qualify as a trade secret, you definitely can't protect it under trade secret law. But maybe you have a contract claim. Maybe you have a breach of contract um, claim there. And different states have different rules on the enforceability of those contracts. But maybe you can have the contract. And then the last layer of information that, in my view, should be the most sacrosanct and safe from protection, and we should really think seriously before we protect it, is this category of general knowledge, skill, and experience. That is where we need to be really careful. When when we decide that this is the kind of information 
that an employee needs to go on and do work in their chosen field, that's when we should be really, really careful. And so whether it's under contract law, using non-competes, right? This is why we see in non-compete contract law, we see courts in every state, even in those in which they're enforceable, always making sure that they're reasonable in terms of um, duration and geographic limits and in what amount of information is protected. Whether we use non-competes or trade secrets, where we say general knowledge, skill, and experience cannot be protected as a trade secret, that's where we need to be the most careful. Mm. Um, so it's it's a different flavor from the, the innovation and competition concerns we see in other areas of IP law, like patent and copyright, which is one of the reasons I'm so adamant about preserving the both the scholarship and the case law that it's been developing in trade secrets. Not it's not just a perfect analog to other areas of IP. There's very particular um, concerns here, um, largely, I think, about personal autonomy. I really like Viva Moffat's work because it sort of gets away from the whole efficiency discussion around this. Say, no, no, we have people's lives at stake here. Mm. Um, and, of course, or- Orly Lobel's work also gets at this question. But to sort of say it's not just about sort of what's going to be most efficient, but um, what's going to be the impact on this person. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, so categories of protectable information, trade secrets, confidential information, and then this sacrosanct category of general knowledge, skill, and experience. Awesome. Well, Camilla, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I've learned a ton about trade secret law from reading your article and from talking about it with you. Thank you. And I likewise learn a ton from your podcast. So thank you so much. dropped in. Ooh, oh, would you like to try a system? Man, I can't resist them. Something good will come from this. I'll just put your proposal here on my desk. Your salesmanship is great. You say you will keep my proposal right, right here with the other. Eight, drop in anytime.